You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. Episode 125, The September Campaign Part 17, A War on Two Fronts. By the middle of September, the general situation for Poland had greatly deteriorated. The defenders of Warsaw were cut off from reinforcements or retreats by the advance of German troops east of the city. In southern Poland, a sizable number of Polish troops had retreated, or were retreating, to what was known as the Romanian Bridgehead, which was the territory from the city of Lvov to the Polish-Romanian border to the southeast. This bridgehead mostly only existed because there were not enough German troops to continue to put pressure on it, with a sizable number of German troops devoted to the siege of Warsaw and the occupation of other territories in south and central Poland. The entire invasion had gone mostly according to German plans up to this point, and really the most pessimistic plans of Poland's leaders from before the war. Things were about to get much worse, though, due to the actions of the Soviet Union. During the negotiations that led to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the topic of Poland had been discussed, and the secret agreements of that treaty had codified the agreement between the two nations that they would carve up Poland between them. On September 17th, the Red Army would cross the border to secure the Soviet territory agreed to in that treaty. In Moscow, the events in Poland after September 1st had been closely monitored. The plan was to enter the war at the correct moment, based on Germany's actions to secure the territory agreed to in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Determining the correct moment was the real challenge. The goal was to capture Polish territory as easily as possible, which required not entering the conflict too early, where real Polish resistance might be encountered, but also not so late that the Germans had already won the war and captured all of Poland. This might have been relatively easy if the conflict had been contained to just Germany and Poland, but the declarations of war by France and Britain made things a bit more challenging. 
The goal was to not appear to be Germany's military ally, which might have brought Britain and France into a war with the Soviet Union, which was not desired by Stalin and the Soviet government. Speaking from the present, we know how 1940s going to go, and the idea of Britain and France also declaring war on the Soviet Union in late 1939 seems absurd, but at the time, the assumption was that Britain and France were very strong and capable military powers, and they should not be trifled with. Regardless of when specifically the Red Army would enter Poland, though, on September 2nd, troops along the Polish border were put on alert, and then after September 5th, a series of mobilization efforts were put into place, which would result in a partial mobilization of the Western military districts, with the mobilization being called a large-scale training exercise. Then on September 11th, those same military districts would concentrate their units along the Polish border, a prelude to invasion. During this time, the German invasion continued, and was quite frankly going much better than the Soviets had anticipated. Soviet leaders always believed that Germany would win, just like everybody else believed that Germany would win, but the speed of their advance forced Soviet plans to accelerate. For their part, the German leaders began asking when the Soviet invasion was going to happen, because as soon as it did, the German troops could stop advancing east, and could stop being at all concerned about the possibility of a counterattack from the far eastern Polish units, which remained uninvolved in the fighting. The number of these troops would drastically drop as the German invasion continued, and by the time of the Soviet invasion, there were only about 12,000 Polish troops guarding the border with the Soviet Union. On September 14th, Molotov would inform the German ambassador that Soviet action was imminent, and that the excuse that would be used for their actions was that Poland was falling apart, and it was the duty of the Soviet Union to protect the Russians and Ukrainians that lived in eastern Poland. Their reasoning had a twofold goal. The first was to explain the invasion to the Soviet people, with the idea that they were just trying to protect Russians and Ukrainians. You know, that, that seemed like a good excuse. Second, the Soviets wanted to try and avoid being labeled as an aggressor nation by the rest of the world. This was seen as an important step to at least keeping on reasonably good terms with Britain and France. The military commanders of the Western military districts would be notified just a few days before the advance was scheduled to begin that they would be moving into Poland on September 17th, which gave them very little time to make final preparations. Speaking of having little time to make final preparations, the Polish ambassador in Moscow, Grzybowski, would be called to the Soviet foreign ministry early in the morning of September 17th. He would meet with Vladimir Potemkin, the deputy foreign minister, and he would be given a note which stated the following, quote, The Polish-German war has revealed the internal failure of the Polish state. Within 10 days of military operations, Poland lost all of its industrial areas and cultural centers. Warsaw, as the capital of Poland, does not exist anymore. The Polish government fell apart and shows no signs of life. This means that the Polish state and its government have virtually ceased to exist. Thus, the agreements concluded between the USSR and Poland are terminated. Left to itself and without leadership, Poland has become a convenient field for all sorts of coincidences and surprises that could pose a threat to the USSR. Therefore, being neutral until now, the Soviet government cannot continue to be neutral with regard to these facts. The Soviet Union also cannot be indifferent to the fact that Ukrainians and Belarusians living in Poland, abandoned to their fate, are left defenseless. In view of this situation, the Soviet government has ordered the high command of the Red Army to order its troops to cross the border and take under their protection the lives and properties of the population of western Ukraine and western Belarus. 
At the same time, the Soviet government intends to take all measures to rescue the Polish people from the ill-fated war, where it was plunged by its unwise leaders, and give them the opportunity to lead a peaceful life. End quote. This note was obviously shocking. Grzybowski refused to accept it at all, and refused to acknowledge the core conceit of the note, which stated that the Polish state no longer existed. However, there was not any real action that he could take against what the Soviets were doing, and so he left, and immediately went back to the Polish embassy to inform the foreign ministry back in Poland what was happening. Potemkin would then have a messenger take the note directly to the Polish embassy, delivering it due to Grzybowski's refusal to take it with him. In the hours that followed, Soviet forces on the border would begin their invasion. At a high level, the invasion had two purposes. The first was to advance to and capture the most important population centers in eastern Poland, uh, Vilno, Grodno, uh, Brest, and Lwów. The second purpose was to simply advance along a broad front, roughly to Grodno in the north, Brest on the Bug River in the center, and Lwów in the south, as the rough areas where the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact had specified were kind of the limits of what would be Soviet territory. At a high level, this was all very reasonable and rational, while at the detail level, there was generally a whole lot of chaos. The Red Army pushing west was under the command of General Kovalev and his Belarusian front, and General Timoshenko and his Ukrainian front. In totality, there was around half a million combat troops in these two formations, uh, dwarfing the number of Polish defenders in eastern Poland, which were under 20,000 generously. The Polish forces in the areas being invaded by the Red Army also had no real understanding of what was happening. There had not been a public declaration of war or any information sent to them uh, warning of the impending Soviet actions. This meant that all along the front, the general reaction of the Polish border guards was a belief that the Soviets were actually coming to help them in their fight against Germany. This was not an unreasonable assumption. There had been countless discussions among nations during the interwar period trying to make a Soviet-Polish agreement work that would allow the Red Army to move through Poland to attack Germany if it was required. The Poles had always denied such requests, specifically because they feared the Soviet Union would do, well, exactly what was happening on September 17, 1939. Now, all of this resulted in a lot of instances where Polish officers would meet with their Soviet counterparts believing that they were going to be greeting them and arranging cooperation, only to be told that their troops had to disarm immediately and they would be surrendering to soldiers of the Red Army. The idea that the Red Army was coming to the aid of Poland would be actively spread by the Red Army itself, using it as a smokescreen for their true intentions to kind of take advantage of the confusion that was happening around them. Later in the day, a message would be sent to all Polish units in eastern Poland to let them know what was happening, that the Soviets were invading and that they should endeavor to resist. But by that point, it was too late for the regions closest to the border. Polish leaders who had evacuated to the Romanian bridgehead over the previous week were just as shocked as everybody else when news of the impending and then active Soviet invasion arrived. For the Polish military, what had been an impossible situation somehow got worse I mean, there weren't really any real options on how to react to what was happening. And so Polish High Command gave the order that all Polish troops in eastern Poland should do their best to resist the Soviet attack before retreating south to the Romanian bridgehead. 
In any case, you know, that order wasn't often followed or, or sometimes wasn't followed. First of all, because it was impossible for a lot of troops, especially those in northern Poland, but also because for some officers, they simply refused to abandon so much of Poland to the Soviets, which were the enemy of modern Poland for its entire existence. Remember, they had marched on Warsaw in 1920. Like, you know, they were the most recent invaders of Polish territory up until the German invasions of 1939. Along the front, this resulted in some real resistance to the Soviet advance, including around the Polish city of Sarny, in what was known as the Sarny Fortified Zone. This had been created before the war and contained over 200 concrete bunkers to be used by Polish defenders. And this meant that what the Red Army troops of the 60th Division found was not a feeble resistance, but instead a determined and well-prepared response. On the night of September 18th, they would make their attack, and, and it would not go well. There would be heavy casualties due to the volume of Polish fire, and the very, you know, basic, some historians might call it mindless, advance of the Soviet troops against the Polish positions. But even here, where there was a well-prepared and determined Polish defense, they would still have to retreat after only 24 hours due to simply running out of ammunition. They would join other troops that would retreat to the west and towards the city of Vladimir Zvornitsky, which is the modern-day city of Vladimir, Ukraine. Here, they hoped to regroup and present a new resistance, but this was not going to happen. The commander of the 2nd Military District um, would instead agree to Soviet terms of surrender for all forces under his command in the region. This deal was made because the agreement was that troops would be disarmed and then allowed to evacuate the area south and into neutral Hungary. Once the surrender was complete, the officers were instead arrested by the Soviet NKVD. In Vilno in the north, which is the modern-day city of Vilnius, Lithuania, there would be 7,000 troops that would be prepared to defend the city, but most of them were volunteers or reservists. They did have a few artillery guns and machine guns, but what they didn't have was anything to deal with Soviet armored vehicles. There were attempts to make the city as hard as to, to capture as possible, using the same kind of urban combat techniques that those in other areas were using, but there were simple limits on how long a, a few thousand volunteers could continue to resist against the Red Army advances. Less than a day after the Soviet forces arrived, the remaining Polish garrison of the city were already retreating towards the Lithuanian border. To the southwest of Vilno was the city of Grodno, and they would hold out a little bit longer, uh, but that was mostly just because they were slightly further from the Soviet border. There were a f you know, fewer soldiers in Grodno, maybe around 2,000, and they had to first deal with a communist uprising in the city before the Red Army even arrived. They would still be able to throw back the first Red Army assaults on September 20th, but there was little they could do against the Soviet tanks that were driving around the city. Some were disabled by sort of throwing gas bombs or Molotov cocktails at them, but these, you know, weren't really reliable methods, and they were unable to deal with the number of Soviet vehicles that were entering the city. By the end of September 21st, the defenders of Grodno would also be in retreat towards the Lithuanian border to the north.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Throughout Poland during this time, there was a wide variety of experiences of those in Poland, as varied as there were a number of people in Poland at the time of the invasion. I thought it would be interesting to kind of discuss the experiences of Jan Karski, though, who would write down his experiences in the book Story of a Secret State. The book begins before the German invasion and discusses the experiences of the author during and after the September campaign. On August 23rd, Karski was informed via a policeman and a slip of red paper that he was part of the secret Polish mobilization efforts that would occur during the last part of August before the German invasion. He only had a few hours to get ready and leave to join his artillery unit after that notification arrived. At that moment, there was not a lot of fear for Karski uh, because there had been other partial mobilizations over the previous months and years that had not resulted in war. And Karski just assumed that the current mobilization was more of a declaration and example of how prepared Poland was to defend itself. It was only when he arrived at the rail station that he realized the size of the mobilization, with the station swamped by residents of Warsaw on their way to defend the front. Once Karski and the other soldiers reached their mobilization destination, Karski explains what it was like in the officers' club, with Karski being a second lieutenant. Quote, It is difficult to explain why, but in the evenings at the club, by almost mutual consent, we tended to shy off any political topic that seemed likely to prove either too controversial or too weighty. 
When we did, at length, launch upon a consideration of the present position and the possibilities that were in store for us, our opinions tended to confirm each other and finally congealed into a uniform optimism that served admirably to protect us from doubt and the need to think clearly about the complex changes that, that were taking place in the structure of European politics with a rapidity that we could not and did not want to understand. After the German invasion on September 1st, Karski and his units of artillery would not be able to really do very much, with only a few batteries being able to even fire against German troops before they were forced to retreat. They were attacked by the Luftwaffe early in the day before being ordered to retreat from the area later that same day. Then the next day, their train was taking them to the east and that was bombed by German planes again, with several train cars being destroyed, leaving the entire unit without transportation. Karski would explain what happened next like this. Quote, the survivors left the wreckage of the train and without bothering to organize or form ranks, proceeded on foot in the easterly direction. We were now no longer an army, a, a detachment or a battery, but individuals wandering collectively towards some wholly indefinite goal. We found the highways jammed with hundreds of thousands of refugees, soldiers looking for their commands, and others just drifting with the tide. This mass of humanity continued to slowly move eastward for two weeks, end quote. As they continued moving east, they would move through areas that had already been visited by German bombers, while also hearing scraps of news about places in Poland falling to the German advance. In several instances, German ground attack aircraft would also strafe the retreating Polish columns, and this would continue until September 18th, at which point Karski approached the outskirts of Tarnopol in eastern Poland. News arrived that the Soviets had crossed the border, in, in the form of a messenger that was delivering the news up and down the column of retreating troops. Not long after Soviet forces appeared and blocked their path, a Polish officer would go talk to them, and the message that he brought back with him was confirmation of the Soviet invasion, and the message delivered would be, quote, The Soviet army crossed the frontier to join us in the struggle against the Germans, the deadly enemy of the Slavs and of the entire human race. We cannot wait for orders from Polish High Command. There is no longer a Polish High Command nor a Polish government. We must unite with the Soviet forces. Commander Plaskov demands that we join his detachment immediately after surrendering our arms. These will be returned to us later. I inform all officers within hearing of these facts and order all non-commissioned officers and soldiers to comply with the request of General Plaskov. Death to Germany, long live Poland and the Soviet Union. This is a fantastic example of the Soviets using the confusing situation to get the Poles to surrender and to give up their arms and then to never give them back. In this case, the soldiers were told to surrender whatever weapons they still possessed, and then Karski and all those that were with him were prisoners of the Soviet army. Karski would later be prisoner exchanged with the Germans after the Polish surrender due to his home area being in Wuj, uh, which was in the German area of occupation. He would then escape and join the Polish underground resistance uh, later that year. When the Soviets invaded, the German forces still continued to push forward with their attacks, even into areas that were going to be handed over to the Soviet Union. The first meeting of the Soviet and German troops would take place north of Brest on the Bug River. Now, the demarcation line specified in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement was the bug, and the Germans here were on the eastern side, which was going to be Soviet territory, and so they agreed to retreat to the western side of the river. 
But before that occurred, General Guderian and the Soviet officers agreed to join each other in a military parade through Brest. This event is even more interesting when you consider that it was in Brest that the Germans and Russians signed the Brest-Litovsk Agreement that ended the First World War on the Eastern Front, and the capture of the city would be an important objective on the first day of Operation Barbarossa in 1941. But regardless of future or, or I guess, past events as well, at that moment, the Germans and Russians were united in victory over a common enemy. There was another major concern after September 22nd, and, and this was kind of a concern that was generated by the fact that pretty much every major Polish city outside of Warsaw uh, was in German or Soviet hands. And so it was really time for both sides to finalize the negotiations that had started with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The pact itself had contained some details, but also some ambiguity, the best example being leaving the future of Poland up for later discussions. The two nations were not sure that they wanted to completely destroy Poland, and the idea of some kind of Polish rump state remained into September 1939. There was also at least some distrust between the two sides, even at this point, and this is outlined in an exchange of diplomatic communications starting on September 18th. Uh, we'll read a note from the German ambassador in Moscow back to Berlin. Quote, in the course of the conversation which I had last night with Stalin, Stalin said somewhat suddenly that on the Soviet side there were certain doubts as to whether the German high command at the appropriate time would stand by the Moscow agreements and would withdraw to the line that had been agreed upon. His concern was based on the well-known fact that all military men are loath to give up occupied territories. End quote. To this message, Ribbentrop would respond with this message the next day. Quote, I request that you tell Mr. Stalin that you reported to Berlin about your conference with him and that you are now expressly directed by me to inform him that the agreements which I made on the authorization of the Fuhrer at Moscow will of course be kept and that we are regarded by us, they are regarded by us as the foundation stone of the new friendly relations between Germany and the Soviet Union, end quote. After the launching of the Soviet invasion, and, and as it looked like the sort of the war in Poland was going to be wrapping up soon, there would be a push for final negotiations on the future of Polish territories, with the German ambassador in Moscow stating, quote, Molotov stated to me today that the Soviet government now considered the time has come to establish definitively, jointly with the German government, the structure of the Polish areas. The Soviet government wishes to commence negotiations on this matter at once and to conduct them in Moscow, since such negotiations must be conducted on the Soviet side by persons in the highest positions of authority who cannot leave the Soviet Union. End quote. The response from Berlin would be in agreement that negotiations would begin soon, and Ribbentrop would again agree to fly personally to Moscow to expedite the discussions. While the Polish leaders were reeling from the Soviet announcement and invasion, and the Germans and, and Soviets were getting together to decide what was going to happen next, in London and Paris, the governments of Poland's two Western allies were mostly just concerned about staying out of things. Both governments were technically within the bounds of their agreements to Poland when they decided not to declare war against the Soviet Union. The alliance documents had, that had been signed between the three nations or the two nations in Poland were clearly targeted at Germany. For the British, their agreement had used the phrase a European power, which I guess you could argue the Soviet Union wasn't. While in the secret protocol signed as part of that agreement, the two nations like directly name Germany as the nation 
that sort of they're allied against. But in fact, neither nation would even break diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union after their invasion of Poland. There, there were generally more concerns about ensuring the continuation of trade agreements than of clashing with Soviet leadership at that point in time, in, in September 1939. It was certainly an example of two nations obeying the letter, but not necessarily the spirit of their agreement with Poland in this case. As you know, I also try not to look too far ahead in these episodes, but right now I'm doing a lot of reading for the Winter War episodes that are going to be released early next year. And I, I found it really interesting that Britain and France would come closer to entering the war against the Soviet Union in 1940, after the start of the winter war between Finland and the Soviet Union, than they would be after the Soviet invasion of Poland in September 1939. And there were no agreements at all between the two Western nations and Finland. I guess that story will continue in, in a few months <laughs> when we get to those episodes. Back in Poland, all that mattered is that no help was coming. And so as the Soviet forces advanced further and further west, the Romanian bridgehead began to disappear. Eventually, Polish leaders, civilians, and soldiers alike that were near the Romanian border would start to cross over. On September 17th, the final orders from Polish military command, given in a radio address, were for any military or government personnel to attempt to evacuate to Romania or Hungary. Thousands would be able to cross the border with Romania, with many of them being able to continue on their journey to Western Europe to continue the fight. But as these troops evacuated the country, not all Polish resistance was yet over. By the end of September 19th, the number of areas of Polish resistance to either German or Soviet invaders were dwindling rapidly, but they, they were still out there. Next episode will cover the end of Polish resistance in two of those areas, Lwów and in, in the far north in Westerplatte and the Hell Peninsula. 